Warning. The Kingdom Cast podcast contains spoilers about comic books, movies, and entertainment in general, as well as anything else that crosses their minds. Please do not take any medical advice seriously, nor legal advice that they may or may not give out. For that matter, it's probably for the best that you take nothing that they say seriously. It's May 27th, 2020, and Kingdom Casts is back with you. Marvel Comics is once again back on the shelves, along with DC Comics, Image Comics, and most other publishers. With us again tonight is Royal Thong Inspector Sandra Swindle. I'm Stan Daniel, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. Did you, did you see that? News article about the Earth's magnetic field is weakening and could possibly split. What? No. Yeah. No, I'm dead serious about this. I'm not making this up. Yeah, the Earth's magnetic field is weakening, according to several scientists that are apparently studying this and could possibly split. It's affecting a, a few satellites here and there and such, but nobody's experienced it in day-to-day -day operations. Not yet, anyway. This is just, just like David Miscavige predicted, which means that Xenu is readying his invasion force for the final battle. And all, all, Albert, of your little snide Scientology jokes have damned you. You, all the whores, all the politicians will look up from the gutters and shout, save us. And Tom Cruise will look down at you and whisper, no. Tom Cruise is a whore. <laughs> what if I wandered into? <laughs> You're not helping yourself out here. <laughs> this is where you recant. <laughs> oh, it is. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> this is where you praise L. Ron Hubbard and <laughs> that man was a bad writer. That man was a bad several things. <laughs> Apparently, he's pretty good at making a religion. So, Sandra, we don't mean to start making fun of your religion right off the bat. I just thought that the Earth's magnetic field tying into Scientology was a good angle. <laughs> Surely. What the heck? <laughs> but now I'm looking up this, this article, and yes, it is talking about the Earth's magnetic field getting weird. And we're in a solar, we're in a major solar minimum as well, and have been for quite some time. What does that mean, solar minimum? It means the sun's not very active. Okay. The sun goes through cycles, or at least in recorded history, the sun has gone through cycles, and we're well overdue for a more active cycle, but the sun has been in the solar minimum for quite some time now. And the magnetic field is weakening, and, and there's COVID-19, and HBO Max went on the way. I'm one for biblical prophecy, but I keep flipping through Revelation, and none of these are listed as signs. <laughs> I ain't gonna worry I'm, about it. I'm looking real hard for where Jesus tells John, and behold, when Snyder doth release his cut of the Justice League. <laughs> Man, that, Wrap it up. That, that, movie, that new release is sitting here 30, thinking, how different can it possibly be? About 30 to $70 million different, according to different sources. Yeah. 
gosh. <laughs> so crazy. I mean, I heard that they're going to have Dark Seed in it, but yeah, Dark Side. Really? I don't know if Dark Side's worth thirty million dollars. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, this also proves that there was there never was some Snyder cut floating around, regardless of what people thought. Yeah, it, it never existed. No, it existed in no, Snyder's it, mind. And that's it. <laughs> and now it's going to exist on HBO Max. When is HBO Max getting off the ground? Yesterday. Today. Today? Oh, Sorry. Today. It was today. Okay. I thought we were a day behind. Today. It's uh, May 27th. We're recording this on Wednesday, May 27th, and it got off the ground today. Yeah, I was telling Albert before you joined us, I was telling Albert that Denise just texted me from upstairs and said, I've got it. I've got it working. I'm like, huzzah. Their lineup's pretty stout. I mean, it's called HBO Max, but it's basically Warner Brothers Plus. So all of the properties Warner Brothers has their claws into, like Cartoon Network stuff, like Rick and Morty and Friends. Friends is the biggest money-making television show out there, and they've got exclusive rights to it now on HBO Max. Plus, I understand they're cutting in all the porn scenes that were cut out from the initial NBC run. Mm. Mostly those oh between gosh. Joey and Ross. All of Studio Ghibli stuff. Yeah, that's or most true. of it. They have a whole lot of Criterion stuff as well. Hanna-Barbera's right. library. How do they get the so. Criterion stuff? It may have been some type of deal that it was already set in place for Turner Classic Movies because they have a tab. When I look at it, there's like a tab or a thing you can hit for different companies or whatever. And one of them is Turner Classic Movies, and there's a bunch of Criterion stuff on that. At one point, TCM and Criterion were like together on some streaming service, I think. So this may be leftover contract stuff from that. I don't know. Yeah, because I was thinking... Criterion had their own streaming service or yeah, something. Yeah, they have Criterion Channel. They've got they also have a deal working out with uh, Crunchyroll for a bunch of anime, mm -hmm. but they don't have a whole lot of that up yet. Hmm. That sounds feasible that this is left over from the Turner Classic I, I deal. Think I think at some point in time before Criterion Channel existed, I could have sworn there was some type of Turner Classics or something like that streaming thing that had TCM and Criterion together or something like that. I can't quite remember. How much Turner Classic do y'all watch? I used to watch a lot of it when it was part of the, the lineup, but then yeah. they had some falling out with Comcast, i.e. they allegedly wanted a lot more money for it. Now it's not part of the lineup, or it's, it's part of a higher package deal or something or the other. Yeah, when we got rid of regular cable, so we, of course, said goodbye to Turner Classic and all this. But do, are you familiar with the wine club? <laughs> yes, I'm very familiar with the wine club. <laughs> Denise and I have decided that the first thing <laughs> that happens if we win the lottery is to get us accommodated to our new life as we joined the Turner Classic Wine Club. <laughs> you know, they have those wines named after the movies like Gone with the Vineyard. Or <laughs> yes, the, the curated, I hate to say loot crate box, but yes. <laughs> it's a mad, 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 mad Merlot. <laughs> so that's our goal in life. We want to be hoity enough to join the Turner Classic Wine Club. That sounds like garbage wine to me. Well, it doesn't freaking matter, man. We don't drink wine. <laughs> we just put it in the wine room. And when the guest comes over, we say, oh, here's our wine cellar. You have a wine room? No, but we would if we won the lottery. <laughs> lottery. Heck, you could, have a, you could have a winery. <laughs> well, I got a, a space could, in my could... fridge next to 
my milk. I put a bottle away every once in a while. We can't afford quality wine, so Denise just grabs smear, a bottle of Smirnoff every night, runs around drinking it, and around 10 p.m. starts talking about the motherland. <laughs> the motherland. Oh, dear. <laughs> well. <laughs> that went south very quickly. <laughs> Join us next week for the divorce. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, they got the animated Hobbit on HBO Max. Oh, do they? That's the way better than those three movies they cocked up. Oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Those movies were great. You're the only person I've ever met that said that. The Hobbit movies? Yeah. Those movies were worth it just for Thranduil. I just saw the first one. It afforded me the opportunity to sit in the theater and read the book in the time allotted for that first movie to run. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. And I forgot about the brown. I had completely forgotten about him and his mushroom habit. <laughs> <laughs> well, on with some actual comic book news here. In the never-ending situation of DC Comics trying to just completely upend retailers and distribution and just go ahead and kill the physical comic book market completely we have a situation where for whatever reason diamond was not able to get certain books dc books out as scheduled this week flash 754 batman and the outsiders number 12 aquaman number 59 Something called DC Goes to War. Oh, that would have to be an anthology of their war comics, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. And a few trade paperbacks. Diamond Comics was not able to get that out. How many times over 16 years at Kingdom, Albert, has randomly, say, three comic books not made their delivery date from either Marvel or DC at Diamond? I mean, it, it's not an uncommon occurrence. Yeah. All things being equal in a normal situation. Yeah. What brings this to light is the fact that DC felt it was necessary to send out a email to retailers everywhere saying that we don't know what's going on over there. We're doing everything we can. And oh my God, these books, they're just not getting their books out. We suggest you rethink the way you do everything and contact Diamond about this situation. They have never, ever... There has been books shipped late before, and DC not say a word about it, and Diamond just send out the email saying, hey, these books are late, they'll ship next week. Yeah. Or, hey, there's allocation on these books, the remainder of them will come out next week. And never has DC sent out an email, nor Marvel, nor IDW, nor anybody else. So what's your take on this? My take on it is it's just tweaking. It's, it's just thumping the nose of this already bad situation. Yeah, I don't know what they think they accomplished. If Diamond had just point blank said, and I'm sure they did, told everybody, look, these will be a week late or whatever. Sorry about that. Like they always do, but for DC to step in and these problems, we're communicating with all of our distributors regarding these problems. You mean you're communicating with the two comic book shops that y'all decided were distributors two weeks ago and Diamond? And why? 
It's not new, DC. You go through this at least 12 times a year. Isn't this the second week this has happened, though? Was it? Is this the second time it's happened? The second week it's happened, but maybe this is the first time that DC is blaming Diamond for it. It could be, but either way, there's not been any real delivery of comics until this week. Yeah. Barely anything hit last week. And it was just the DC stuff. DC was in a mad dash to get us clearly the Eisner award-winning issue of Flash number 754, which we'll get to in just a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is bad form all the way around. And again, I want to emphasize Having multiple distributors at any time in the past would have been a great situation. I'm behind having multiple distributors. Albert and Sandra are both behind having multiple distributors. It's just the whole way and the timing of this situation. It really does seem like DC Comics is taking the role of adversary against a recovery to the uh, to the pandemic situation, which has delayed comic books for over a month. I just do not know what the heck is going on with them. Like you said, it would be nice to try to figure out who was making these decisions at DC. They're not hanging anybody out for that yet. The email they sent out, the email that DC sent out, and I wouldn't have necessarily known it unless I checked Newsrama or CBR, one of the websites, but we get the newsletters. Kingdom still gets the newsletters and the emails from DC and Marvel and the other companies. And when I saw that, what that struck me has is propaganda. So propaganda to what end is the next question. And the only answer I can come up with is I don't think there's a ton of retailers signing up for CBCS and Midtown Comics Mm-hmm. distribution centers well they're not in a p- position to do it right now even if they wanted to i, I know I, I think that as well i mean i know that as americans we've all gotten bored with the pandemic so naturally it's over a lot of the small business owners are not seeing it as that yeah they're not the swing back is not there entirely yet right it's a mess i'm not i don't not quite sure what's what they're thinking what the thinking is behind all of this But I guess we'll see. (laughs) We're going to find out and see how this plays out soon. Right now, the CBCS and Midtown Comic Distribution Centers are distributing only DC Comics. At least as of this recording, that was the last report I heard. Albert, have you heard any differently? I don't think I heard much of anything different. That's where we are. But all of those titles, Aquaman, The Flash, and Batman and the Outsiders, they came out on Comixology. Again, this is nothing. (laughs) These are not milestone issues here. Nothing to break your neck over or anything else. I would really like to see at least some form of grace or civility from DC on some of these situations. Yeah, I don't understand. I mean, surely to God, they understand what's going on outside their own doors. Jim Lee at least seems to understand it. He may not be the one calling the shots. Well, that's that's what's bothering me about this because yeah, publisher is traditionally supposed to be the one in the role that calls these shots, but also when you're tied up in the conglomerate like Time Warner, AT&T, that just could be a title with a different job description underneath it. Important, 
I don't I, I don't doubt the level of importance of Jim Lee at all, but he may not be acting in the traditional role that publishers do. Yeah. Okay, so that's what we got going on with DC. Albert, you read Flash number 754 by Williamson and Sandoval, didn't you? I did. Okay, this is one of the books affected by that delay. I like the plot. It's just the villain paradox ain't much of a villain. He doesn't really do anything to help the story any. But it feels like we've read this Flash story. That Probably. It, we've talked about this before when we last reviewed Flash about two months ago before the delays. I don't think anybody's missing anything, nothing at all. This, to me, was not the least little bit engaging, other than we get a big splash page where we learn that Paradox has no dick. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably why he's angry. Probably. And, you know, and is Barry responsible for his being dickless? <laughs> These are the questions that we need answered. I'm serious, though. You know the splash page I'm talking about. He's naked, except clearly no genitals. Well, I mean, they're going to draw I mean, they're not <laughs> shadowing him in, and I'm not saying they should draw it, but at least give him a bodysuit. I guess. It was awkward, Albert. It was awkward. I didn't notice it. I, I want Wally back, Albert. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have him Wally never. Wally had complicated villains <laughs> with, with proper genitalia. <laughs> Seriously, did you ever doubt that Captain Cold was had his genitalia? I, I never, never thought did. about it. Well, I never had to think about it because Captain Cold was never naked in the middle of a splash page. What score did you give it, Albert? I gave it straight threes, I guess. I came close to that. I gave the writing a two. Art a three. It was non-imaginative, but it was very serviceable. Everybody's muscle-bound. Nobody varies in their body build. Yeah. Dynamic, I gave one because overall DC is being a big enough dick that they could probably let Paradox borrow some of theirs. My overall score on it was two. It's not anything to get upset over, but my problem is this. I read two books that did not come from Marvel and DC that were well worth the money and is not going to get nearly the attention that, say, Flash or Justice League does. Yeah. We'll get to those two books a little bit later on. Also on the DC side, what did we have? We had Justice League number 45 by Venditti and Barrows. This is going into the Spectre storyline, second issue. Yeah, I didn't care for it. It seems pointless to even put this book out. Well, it does because it's still taking place in the past. I mean, before the last never-ending storyline that was done previously. And that cover... That cover has been done to death. Yeah, yeah, the Spectre holding the superheroes. That's not even an homage to previous artists. It's just a standard of oh, Spectre, and he's got all the superheroes dangling from his hand, and it wasn't even as good as most of the other ones. I had a major problem with the storytelling in it, and Albert, Sandra, both of you chime in on this. This is beyond standard comic book problems. Batman identifies the Spectre as working for God with the capital G. Yeah. Here's the problem when God with a capital G shows up in comics. And he not only shows up in this issue, he talks and interacts. You don't physically see him, but you read his voice and he's interacting with DC Comics characters. God or Spectre? God. Will the Justice League now be going forth to convert the masses to the gospel of Jesus Christ after this, now that we've got God with a capital G? Or at the very least, if we're not going to get denominational specific, will Diana renounce the Greco-Roman pantheon and deal with them for their blasphemy? Because she's standing right there. 
Yeah, that's a big mistake to to do. Yeah, it's, it's perfectly okay for the specter to be the right hand of God, the judgment of God yeah. with the capital G. It is a-okay. It's a-okay for the specter to be that from the 1930s to right now and beyond. It's an another thing entirely for God to have dialogue and interact with these characters. Nobody has ever done that concerning the specter in this situation before, and it's not even good dialogue or interaction. Grant Morrison didn't even do that. Yeah, with all the angels and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Grant yeah. Morrison had an entire pantheon of angels, but never once did they allude or interact with uh, the Almighty. And when I say this, I'm not coming at it when I say the Almighty. And the, I'm using Batman's take. Batman says God with a capital G concerning who the Spectre works for, and then God with a capital G starts interacting with the characters in the book. It doesn't matter to me whether you're a religious, atheist, or whatever. This is a big problem here. Because now you've got God with a capital G. Am I wrong in saying when you hear Batman say, or when you read Batman say God with a capital G, you assume no matter what religion, whether Christianity, Islam, or anything else, you assume they are referring to the be-all, end-all creator. That's who the Spectre's based off of, yeah. Yeah. Or part of. Sandra, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I just think that you're just asking for trouble when when you do that. In a Marvel or DC book, I mean, it's fine if you want to handle that in an independent book, your own universe. When you say trouble, are you talking about potential backlash? Because I'm not talking about backlash. I don't think anybody's going to read this and immediately start protesting Justice no, no. League number I, 45. I, I... I'm talking about story structure. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure there'll be some backlash from some people, but... Who? Who? Well, Nobody yeah, this comic? No, nobody's, nobody's reading this comic, and this is going to be one. There's too much else going on. What I'm saying is story structure and construct of the DC universe. God with a capital G. Now that we've established that God with a capital G is a character inside DC Comics, I demand an explanation he's always been for the character New 52. Inside DC Comics. He's always been a character. He's always been referenced inside of DC Comics. At Batman, Batman has now identified him as an yeah. individual in there. And before this, I was fairly certain Batman was an atheist. <laughs> it's probably like, agnostic it, or something. Yeah, agnostic, what have you. But it's like the joke about the dog on the family guy, the devout atheist, and he's interacted with the character of Jesus several times on that cartoon. That's comedy, so you've got leeway there. This isn't comedy. It's bad enough to be comedy, but it's not intended as comedy. Coming out of this, on the other side of whatever happens with the comic books and the distribution and all, because I'm one of these people that still says the situation with the pandemic is not over and that will continue to be dealing with aftermath from all this in ways we can't even imagine yet, that this Justice League is just going to kind of get forgotten in the shuffle. Would you think, Albert, that it'd be a good time for the Justice League to go on hiatus? Yeah. I assume it's going hiatus when Death Metal 2, or whatever it's called, comes out. Well, you see, you haven't heard much talk about that. Let's go ahead and give our scores on Justice League. Mine was a 1.3 overall. Writing a 2, Art of 2, Dynamic a 1. Well, I gave the writing a Dynamic a 2 and the Art of 3. 2.7. Yeah. Marvel canceled 53 different variants this yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> 
they may just—they ju- may just release them later. Who knows? Well, they could. I mean, because no artwork goes to waste with. If they see the market go back to normal, no doubt that we'll get some form of these variants in one way or the other. But in addition to that, Sandra, you had texted me earlier about them moving several other books over to digital only, including Revenge of Cosmic Ghost Rider, Scream which is Carnage tie-in, and Valkyrie, Jane Foster. Yeah, I thought that Valkyrie book was, maybe they were just overshipping it or something, but I thought it was doing relatively well. Albert and I, we liked the storylines. It was yeah. pretty good. It wasn't the be-all, end-all of comic bookdom. I mean, am I speaking out of term here, Albert? Yeah, it was a good book. Uh, well, I think what the issue is, is that since comic books are serialized, once books get delayed and everything, they lose their momentum. So like a lot of these books, even if they sold okay, if they came out back in physical sales, Jane Foster would what? Probably have half the sales it had before because people just forgot about it or, or people just decided to give up on it or something. Well, that's it. We don't know what the average comic book purchaser's income is going to be or anything else. Let me read off the list of the comic books that were previously floppy comic books and are now coming out from Marvel Comics as digital only. Avengers of the Wasteland, number five. Revenge of the Cosmic Ghost Rider, number five. 2020 Forceworks, number three. Scream, Curse of Carnage, number six. Valkyrie, Jane Foster, number 10. Ant-Man, number five. 2020 Ironheart, number two. Ghost Spider, number 10. Hawkeye Freefall, number 5. Marvel Spider-Man, The Black Cat Strikes, number 5. Ravencroft, number 5. And Star, number 5. Most all of those are limited series. Only like two or three of them are ongoing titles, Valkyrie being one of them. Ghost Spider being the other one. But I'm willing to bet you if you're an ongoing title and you're on that list of now coming out digital only, your days as an ongoing title are numbered. That by December of this year, your series will have wrapped up, if not sooner. If those are issue 10, I doubt they'll go past 12. But I'm surprised that there's books that allegedly, just going by the diamond sales list, which of course is not completely accurate, but how in the heck is Runaways still going? It has like 25, 26 issues or something like that. I can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly. And it's allegedly selling like 7,000 copies. There's no way that book is doing 7,000 copies. They may be shipping out 7,000 copies, but there's not 7,000 people buying that book. Really? You think there's less than that? Yes, I do. It's well below the threshold of what's been canceled. I think what we've got here is a lineup of things that were either getting ready to end or are simply going to end now post-COVID. Here's my thing. I understand why they don't want to release them and flood the market with all these titles that are less than stellar sellers, but I don't understand why they just don't wait then. Just wait. I guess because they can't. They got product to ship and stores need something to sell. But these are not selling in stores. So, They're selling only in digital. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is, they've already paid these people for these books. All these writers and artists and inkers and letterers, they've all been paid. So yeah. they've got to do something with it. they got to, they got to make some numbers show up somehow. And again, we go back to the thing that, look, you've already paid the writers and the artists. The work is already done. It's going to cost more to publish it, but we know that we're already losing money on it. Send it straight to digital and let it do whatever it's going to do there. There's some, when it comes to creative situations like this, 
for instance, I'm going to jump over to Disney Plus real quick. There is a whole lot on Disney Plus, like these little five to ten minute cartoons that they put in front of the Pixar and the Disney movies when they get released in theater that are not in and of themselves generating money, but are something that they can do as like an added bonus. But what it's really for is to generate ideas and to hone talent inside of Disney. But now that we've got Disney Plus, we can slap them on here because they weren't making us any money anyway, but they add value to the overall Disney Plus subscription service. Same thing with these digital comics. These digital comics, even though they're not going to publication or uh, like they were before, they're being thrown into the digital comics to overall add value to Marvel's digital comic side or digital comic library. And if nobody buys them on digital, then they'll ultimately end up in the Marvel Comics library. One of their free libraries or free situations you get when you pay for a subscription service to the Marvel website or something else. So what they're doing here, I feel, is cutting their loss and not going to the added extra expense of publishing these books, which they know are about to get lost in the shuffle. That's the impression I get, is that Marvel is just cutting its losses. However, I'm going to say that these miniseries, I think they've already been pre-ordered. I think that the sales, they've, they've already got the sales on those, or they had the sales that they were going to get on the floppies on these books. Because this is not, nobody is just coming off the street going, oh yeah, I, I want the number four of six of this miniseries but that's, that's sitting on the rack. That's changed though now. And let me tell you this, we we don't pay for Valkyrie until the week Valkyrie shows up. When a store orders the comic books, they write the check that week. Now, they have up to final order cutoff two to three weeks beforehand to change the numbers on the books. But what Marvel's doing here, it helps the comic book shops. Because the fewer of these titles that I've ordered, which are probably no longer going to sell to a subscription base that I don't know for a fact is going to be existing anymore after the self-quarantine stay-at-home situation for the last month and a half. It's a benefit to me as a retailer for me not to have to pay for these books, whether or not I've ordered 20 or 200 of them, of any one particular issue. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I'm just saying, as a fan, it really ticks me off that I have committed to the miniseries I've pre-ordered it. I've put it on a sub. I expect to get the end of the miniseries in the floppy because that's where I started out with. Yeah. And now I'm not going to have that. But, um, but you still have your job at right now. That's Can true. you imagine if you lost your main source of income mm -hmm. and that your comic book shop started calling you saying, look, are you coming in to get these books or not? Mm -hmm. In cases of some comic book shops, you sign an agreement and you put a down payment on mm -hmm. the pull lists. We were, like I've said it repeatedly, I am a lousy business person. We never did that. And very rarely, we may send out an email or we might have given somebody a ring saying, hey, your pull list is here. We got to make a decision about it. If you don't want it, just let us know so we can recycle these books or what have you. But there's some comic book shops that are very militant about your coming in to get your pull list. Right. There have yeah, been lawsuits over that. Yeah. If you have a pull list, you have to buy it. That's my yeah. philosophy. 
course, if you don't have a job, it makes it difficult to do that. That's exactly I, right. I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying, as a fan... As a this, fan, this, in this normal in a normal situation, right. this would upset you. Well, We've all got to understand we're not in a normal situation anymore. Right. I guess the other thing I'm going to say is that, you know, this is the second time in, well, the third for me personally, but the second time in the last 10, maybe a little bit longer, but at least 10 years that I've watched Marvel totally destroy the miniseries format. First, they did it by flooding the market about 10 years ago when the Thor movie came out. It seems like there were 10 different Thor miniseries out. Or when Captain America, the movies come out, they, they just flooded the market with all these miniseries for whatever movie was coming out. And then the bottom kind of fell out of those. They rarely did a miniseries for almost 10 years. And then when CB became editor, he started doing all these miniseries. I mean, everything in his uncle was a miniseries. So they flooding the market, but they weren't, at least they weren't flooding the market with 10 Thor miniseries. It was different titles and stuff. Which I think that's what the miniseries is for. It's for characters or ideals that they're not sure about that they can do like a test run on. Are you aware that the reason Bob Harris lost his job as editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics was because he did not flood the market with X-Men comics when the X-Men movie came out? Isn't the market always flooded with X-Men comics? It, it was not at that time, and the X-Men books that were out there didn't have any of the characters that were in the X-Men in them. Blade was the same way. Yeah. The exact same way was Blade, and they took that into consideration. It didn't happen once with X-Men. It had happened a couple of times by that point, and that was one of the reported reasons that he had lost his job over that, and Joe Casada and Bill Jemis took over. Ever since then, whenever there's a movie coming out, they make it a point that the comic book shelves at the comic book stores are going to have two to three titles at least that reflect and look like the movie that's in the theaters at that moment. In other words, it's not just that there were X-Men titles out. There needed to be X-Men titles that actually had Storm, Wolverine, and Cyclops in them. And right. there weren't at that time. Yeah. It was people like Maggot and Marrow and fifth and sixth tier mutants you've never heard of before. Marrow was in that, a video game, though. Well, His and Marvel vs. Capcom were the best fighting games ever made. Marvel vs. 2, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I remember My that. My blood actually. pressure is going up. Do <laughs> what? My blood pressure is going up. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Wasn't Submariner in the Avengers actual console game that was in arcades? Didn't the Avengers have to fight Submariner, or didn't he fight with the Avengers in that? It was a walkthrough straight line game. It was a beat em up. Yeah, it was a beat em up. I swear I think he was in there. The Avengers! Okay, Albert, what were you going to say earlier that was going to change the subject? They should release Rob Liefeld and Robert Kirkman's Killraven miniseries digitally. <laughs> what was it? Not Major Robert X. Kirkman, you... Robert Kirkman and Rob yeah. Liefeld did a Killraven miniseries. I'm okay if we never hear Rob it, it, best Liefeld. Of my knowledge is, best of my knowledge, it's finished. 
And I don't know what's happened in the last two weeks, but every time I turn around, I cannot escape Rob Liefeld. It turns out that Rob Liefeld is in some of the Disney groups that I'm in. <laughs> except, yes, he's in some of the Disney groups I'm in, and I'm not going to give them out because I don't want anybody swinging in there and crapping in the pool because here's the deal. In these Disney groups, nobody knows who in the hell Rob Liefeld is. And his name keeps popping up. And I thought, no, this is just somebody named like Robert Liefeld or something. And I looked into it and I'll be damned if it's not him. <laughs> he was answering. They were doing something where they posted a scene from a movie, from a Disney movie. And you guess the movie. Rob swung in there and he said, National Treasure 2. He does this, but he never says any of the BS that he says on his Twitter feed. And that's because they wouldn't have it. If they saw that picture he drew of Deadpool killing Mickey Mouse, he'd be banned from all of them. And I toyed with that, that idea for a good 25 minutes earlier today. <laughs> wow. I had and no then idea I, he was a big Disney fan. Well, it, here's what comes out. I started looking at his post. He never posts anything like that in any of these Disney groups. Well, yeah. Which tells me that it is 110% there to get him attention on Twitter and his personal yeah. uh, social media accounts. Because when you look at his name and you trace it back and he's verified, and it, it definitely is Rob Liefeld. Nobody in these Disney groups gives a damn about who Rob Liefeld is. They and, do. If they do, he created the, the X-Force or New Mutants or whatever the hell. No, they wouldn't even know that. You're talking about inside these Disney groups, they're talking about things like the live-action Robin Hood movie with the fox, which wouldn't actually be live-action since a fox is playing Robin Hood, but, you know, it would be more like the Lion King and stuff. They don't care about... If somebody posts about the Marvel stuff in one of these Disney groups, it's, okay, I give up. I'm going to watch the Marvel stuff on Disney+. Plus. Does anybody have a order I should watch them in? And then 450 people post their orders in the wrong manner. And some of them come back and say, isn't that the comic book stuff? Or why can't I find Batman in the Marvel section on Disney Plus? Was it and, idiots? Well, that's no, they just don't care about the comic books. And that's fine. They care about Cinderella and Frozen and Mickey Mouse and the original cartoon. God. But uh, yeah, Rob keeps his mouth pretty yeah rob rob does not go on rants in the disney groups every time i turn around i kept seeing his name pop up i don't want to think about you i knew he had posted that picture of deadpool and mickey mouse earlier this week and i thought to myself hmm <laughs> hey guys see this picture here's a link to the guy that drew it <laughs> get in because <laughs> albert <laughs> You only think that comic book fans are insanely fanatic about things? Hang out with some Disney fans. Wait, let me tell you about Sonic the Hedgehog fans. <laughs> Moving right along, let's talk about the Marvel comics that came out this week. Albert, what did you read from Marvel Amazing Spider Man? Yeah. I thought it was just serviceable. It's another Spider-Man issue. The guy's doing fine, yeah, but I'm it's fine. nothing over the top. I've enjoyed this run pretty much the whole time. It's just sort of, here's a fun Spider-Man book. It doesn't try to do anything. It's not like one massive hit of a story arc after another. It's just like, hey, it's Spider-Man. He's roommates with Boomerang, and they get into some crap because Boomerang's an idiot. Well, 
Okay, let, let's put it like this. If in continuity, comic book Spider-Man was a real person and all of this stuff that had happened to him, he would be Green dead. Goblin, Gwen Stacy, all of this stuff had happened to him. And he was looking back over his life and, and looked back over this last bit of his life since, say, Spider-Man number 800 were up to what would be in continuity, Spider-Man number 844, he'd think, you know, I've really had a good time these last few weeks. I mean, yeah, I've I've had little incidents and stuff, yep. but nobody's killed one of my girlfriends. I haven't made a deal with Satan, and <laughs> it's all very cute. It's all very fun. It's almost too fun. Overall, I gave it a 3.7. I thought the art was great. I thought the writing was a 3. I gave the art a uh, 4. I gave the dynamic overall a 4. I called it a 3.7 overall. What'd you call it? I gave it straight 4s. What do you think is about his new little dog? Uh, I'm fine with it. It's just a little, you know, demon extra little character in there. You see, what I hate about this is it's almost like, oh, well, he's got sort of a dog. It's a little demon, but it's sort of a dog. But you know, eventually something's going to happen to it. It's got to go away. It's not crypto. And even if it was crypto, dear God, I, I could have killed somebody over the crypto situation after New 52. So yeah, your Spider fan, pick up Spider-Man. All of the Spider-Man, all of the amazing Spider-Man books are very easily accessible, wouldn't you say? Yeah, pretty much. Like Mary Jane's a good book. I really like Mary Jane. That's a very good book. But they can swing into amazing Spider-Man yeah. anytime and they're not lost. Here's a spotty fact. What's uh, that? Michael Golden created Spaghetti Webbed. Yes, he did, in Marvel Fanfare. No, here's where they got it from. Art Adam's done it too, but... Golden was a little ways before yeah, Adam. Yeah, they used to put out these Marvel, you know, those old uh, black and white portfolios and stuff they would do. Uh-huh. There's a Defenders piece he did that's got Spider-Man on it for some reason. And the Spider-Man is just Todd Spider-Man. Like, it's overly, really? anim it's overly animated, and the webbing is straight up. If you saw the webbing, you would think Todd McFarlane drew that webbing. Here's why I was saying it was in Marvel Fanfare. Because the, Golden did some Marvel Fanfare issues with Amazing Spider-Man and the Angel from the X-Men in the yeah. Savage Land. Well, see, and people, when, thought that, people figured that's where Todd and, yeah. and uh, Larson and them admitted that they got it from Golden. They mentioned that Art Adams do it like that, too. But they, they mentioned the Fanfare stuff. And they're like, no, they got it from the old portfolio he did. When you look at the image, it's almost like they made he he drew the Fender's image and then just went back and just slapped Spider Man on it somewhere. Oh man! But that Spider Man is just Todd Spider Man. When I was younger, like in tenth grade or so, me and my friend Hatcher were talking when McFarlane took over Spider Man. He was talking about how unique it looked and the webbing and stuff, and I said, "No, no, no! That webbing comes from Marvel Fanfare, Michael Golden." But I never knew about the uh, sketchbook that he had out. Or the portfolio. Yeah, neither did I until I looked it up. Because occasionally what I'll do, I'll read a bunch of old interviews and stuff like that of comic book creators and look at old yeah. art. And it was like the origins of spaghetti webbing. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this probably has nothing to do with Rob Liefeld, so I'll read it. <laughs> and we both read Marauders, number 10, by Jerry Dugan and artist Matteo Lolly, right? You know, I forgot that Kitty Problem's dead. <laughs> I didn't forget the Kitty Pryde. We didn't have comics nice. for like two months, so. Yeah, the last time it came out was March. When I was in the middle, in the, like toward the end of this book, I was like, oh yeah, Kitty's dead. They can't bring her back. Yeah, they were having trouble with it, but Professor X called it a day, which tells me Lockheed is going to be the key to this. Yeah, there's something involving Lockheed that's like her connection to Lockheed seems to be the, the missing piece. 
dollars to donuts it's lockheed we know lockheed's alive and well and i'm not trying to put you in a position here and i'm not trying to go marvel versus dc but you read marauders 10 yeah how can you even look at the flash issue that came out this week and think that it's a solid superhero comic after reading marauders 10 well, like I said, I like the the plot and the art. It's okay. I yeah. just think Paradox is a lame villain. Man, but I mean, Marauders had so many different facets to it. The Kitty Pride situation. And Emma. This is one of the best takes on Emma ever. That's a very good... They do a very good Emma in this book, especially this issue. Yeah, Jerry Dugan and Hickman, they know who Emma Frost is, yep. and they've got her down pat. I mean, like Sebastian Shaw, he's never been better either. I defy anybody to read Marauders number 10 in comparison to any of the DC Cape books that were offered this week and not truly come away knowing that this was a better comic and overall is. And Marauders is not even, you know, it's Marauders. It's one of the secondary X books. Marauders is a secondary book, but it's like an upper B-level book. It's extraordinary. Maybe X-Men beats it out. But Marauders is one of my favorite books. Why are you not reading Marauders, Sandra? I'm behind on new X-Men books. It takes place in the ocean. That's the other reason why I'm not reading it. <laughs> I mean, well, you got to understand, at some point, Namor is going to show up in this book. That is my big thing about it is, okay, you have a pirate ship with a bunch of pirates on it that are mutants and they're on the ocean and you have Emma Frost and you're not even mentioning Namor. Okay, no, well, I'm not going to Well, at some point in time, Namor's going to show up and let Magneto and them know, listen, oh. y'all got this island, but I own everything around this island and y'all should <laughs> do well to remember that. If only, Mag if only. Speaking of Magneto, was that not a great scene? It was. Charles was, well, let's discuss, and Magneto's hand goes up, and he takes off his helmet, and he says, let Emma know to make sure there are no witnesses. <laughs> awesome book. I gave it a five across the board. I love the art. I love Jerry Dugan. He's also on Savage Avengers, just kick butt. Marauders number 10 from Marvel. I gave the writing and the... Uh... Dynamic of five. I gave it the art of four. Art's, art's art. fine. I mean, it's not bad. It's not great. It's above average, so four. Let's talk about a couple more comics here real quick. First off, we had already gotten away from DC, but this is a DC comic published by DC Comics. I just wanted to talk about Masters of the Multiverse ended this week with issue number six by Seeley. I am not a He-Man fan. I mean, I'm interested in the history. I'm interested in the documentaries I've watched. There's a passing interest. I was never a fan of the cartoons or the movie or anything. More interested in how He-Man came to be than anything else. I like this comic book way too much. When you first put me on this, I thought, no, man, this is ridiculous. I am more of a fan of this than any version of He-Man. <laughs> Well, it's just a fun comic. They use all the different He-Mans. They make up new ones like that. We have Shazam family He-Man in this issue. Well, and that's just it. But it's not just a fun comic. It's meta. And yeah. while they keep the tone light, they fully acknowledge the ridiculous versions of He-Man and the He-Man universe to have occurred. It's wonderful. It's a really, really good comic. I love how they describe the cartoon show. Oh, God. Well, it's the cartoon show that comes through at the end. 
Yeah. That was great. I love that they incorporated the music into it, too. If you're not a fan of He-Man, if you are a fan of He-Man, when this comes out in trade paperback, read it. It's Masters of the Multiverse, and it's six issues long. It's written by Seeley, and it was just extraordinarily well done and has not gotten nearly enough attention. I highly recommend buying this book. The entire series I gave a score of four to. I gave the whole series a five because they did that bit at the end when he puts all the He-Mans back to where they go. They talk about the cartoon He-Man. It's like, and I put this He-Man back where he, or him and his friends could teach each other's lessons every day. Every day, all day long. (laughs) I gave him back his sword and put it back. Well, it's him, though. It's the cartoon He-Man that pulls everything together, and rightfully so. I love what they did with this here. If you used to be a fan of He-Man and Masters of the Universe or had any interest in him whatsoever, it is well worth your money to pick up this when it comes out and trade. So we both recommend Masters of the Multiverse, right? Yeah, it's real fun comic. Does what it's supposed to do. But even if you don't really care for He-Man or know much about him, you can probably read it and have a good time with it. I had a great time with it. Now, from Aftershock Comics, Dead Day number one from Aftershock by Ryan Parrott and artist Evgeny Bornyakov. This is really not what you expect. I looked at it and I thought, great, another zombie comic they've released in the middle of a pandemic and was not looking forward to it. But because it was one of the few number ones we got this week, I went ahead and read it. This is not what I expected, and it's different enough to hold your attention and your interest. I'm hoping that as we continue with this comic, the answers are as interesting as the questions questions issue number one puts forth. The brief setup is this. Normal world, normal situation, except once every so many years, a religious cult lets everybody know that the day of the dead is coming. Basically, the dead comes back to visit with their loved ones or to try to confront the people that killed them or whatever. And you're not talking zombies here. You're not talking zombies at all. And that's what really got me. When you get into it and you watch the main character have an obligation to somebody that she knows that died before her current situation with her husband and her daughter, that's what really gets you. So I give Dead Day number one a score of four. Straight fours across the board. The art was very good. The writing, like I said, it captures your attention and your interest enough that you want to know the answers. The dynamic, I wasn't expecting this, so I gave the dynamic a four as well. Yeah, Dead Day is well worth your money. Unless you're just reading Flash or a comic book like Flash and are an absolute completist, you can forego that comic book to pick up the issue of Dead Day and to give it a read instead. It's different, it was interesting, it was intriguing, and it's what comic books should be. By accident, I read uh, Rogue Planet number one. It's put out by Oldie Press. Yeah. It is written by Cullen Bunn, illustrated by Andy McDonald, and colored by Nick Filardi. It's a standard like space horror comic. There's a little bit of an intro in the front of it about planet that they're on or they're going to land on. But for the most part, it's like, hey, here's this sort of monster planet where the planet itself may just be a big monster itself. They don't not, they're not too clear on it yet. And they do a, a basic introductory of everyone wakes up from stasis. They introduce themselves. Did they go down to this planet to figure out what's down there and try to salvage stuff? They get the distress signal and they find these other ships that have been attacked and abandoned on this planet. Despite how generic the comic is, it's a fairly well put together book. Very, very well written. I'd recommend issue one. 
It's got real good monster designs and stuff in it. I'd give like yeah. the writing a four or the art a four, and, and I guess dynamic four, so I give it straight fours across the board. Albert and I have talked about Alienated coming out from Boom Studios in the past. Uh, we're up to issue number three this week. Writer Simon Spurrier and artist Chris Wild Goose on it. We were both kind of iffy. We were both saying like, oh, this book has potential, you know, but it could go either way. Well, now we're on issue number three. And after reading issue number three, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you need to pick up this book. This may turn out to be one of the best books out there. Not only is it largely unique in the story that it's telling, it's very interpersonal. And after the last issue, we thought we knew what way this was going to go. After this issue, we did not know which direction this was going to take. This is an outstanding comic book with wonderful art and some of the best characterization I've seen in a very, very long time. And it's well worth your money. I gave Alienated fives across the board and highly recommend it yeah this book is very very well done as good as it was i was still iffy on it but after this issue the stuff they do with the characters and whatnot this is a top-notch book it really i, I is. really don't see how this book doesn't get as much attention as it should so well we're putting attention on it and i cannot yeah. recommend it enough i was suggesting rather than the humdrum normal comic books you pick up maybe look at your list especially where we're all having to look at our budgets and finances and make room for Alienated. This is a book you want to be reading. It's very engaging. It's very well done. Again, like Albert said, I can't believe it's not getting the attention. In a world in the year 2017. In a time of tradition. In a city where anything can happen. In a war that isn't his. Every day in New York City. On the Miami Police Force. In the Deep South. From the sewers of Gotham. From the rooftops of Gotham. Above Gotham. On to the movie portion of the show. <laughs> this just then, Henry Cavill is in talks to be Superman again. That's right. Yeah, he's in talks. We don't know if it's for the Snyder Cut or what it's actually for. So. I swear to God, if that Snyder Cut comes out and it's worse than that Josh Weed Gut, <laughs> you will never hear the end of it from me. I never said I wanted to watch the well, Snyder now Cut. Now there's talk about an Ayers Cut of Suicide Squad. Who, and who I mean, even, no one's asking for that garbage. Uh, Ayers is apparently. Ayers and Warner Brothers seems to be. Uh, yeah, Air, uh, Warner Brothers seems to be taking him seriously. I thought we saw the Ayers Cut of Suicide Squad. I don't recall anybody getting an heir's way on Suicide Squad. I mean, what what more can he do? Is he going to the drop thing the I camera? Can think of is edit in all that Joker footage they shot. He may have actually cut some scenes from the grotesque, obvious shots he was taking of Margot Robbie in it. That it just oh god, stop it! I hope HBO Max's platform comes up with better stuff than just having them go back and re-edit older movies or movies we've already seen. And I'm sure it is. I'm I'm sure they've got a much better platform than that. And I'm just griping because I don't see any reason for any of it. I mean, that has really, really taken on a life of its own. There's I want a lot that we I want that Warren Beatty cut of Dick Tracy that I uh, read about. For that decades. is the Warren Beatty cut. He directed it. Not well. There's like some rated R cut they wouldn't let him put oh, out. Lord. Oh, is there? Yeah, they found it in some salt mine somewhere. A salt mine. Well, if you have Donna signed for your movie, it'd be a shame not to go ahead and make a rated R version of it. You're just wasting potential there. Well, you I gotta just... get your money. Gotta get your money's worth out of it. Jeez. 
Well, speaking of money's worth, you wanted to talk about the black hole. Oh, I did, did I? I did, didn't I? Yes, Yes, you did. You called it. I just sold stuff out there. 1979 Walt Disney Productions, The Black Hole, directed by Gary Nelson. Sandra, did you take a watch at it? Yes, I did. I certainly did. I fell asleep at the end of it, but I did watch it. Well, then you missed the entire point of the movie. which. I went back and rewound it, but I was like, wait, wait, did I miss the end of it? (laughs) Oh, they went to hell. That ending, this is one of the few uh, movies that I did not go see in the movie theater when it came out. I'm not sure how that happened, but I did not see this in the movie theater when it came out. So this was kind of a surprise for me. I don't remember seeing it before, and that ending was completely out of left field. I was not expecting that at all. Not what you expected from a Disney movie. That ending was wild. Not what I was expecting from any movie. (laughs) Am I wrong? Was this not just 20,000 leagues under the sea set around a black hole? I guess. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, the the interior, the dining room, Maximilian Schell has the... He wasn't... He was captain, but he was only captain by default because he killed or zombieized everybody. Uh, Reinhardt. As Dr. Reinhardt, I mean, he was Captain Nemo. I definitely... that feel yeah yeah and anthony perkins really kind of played the kurt douglas role there up until he was murdered until he was screwed (laughs) yeah until he got screwed over he was a big supporter until he got killed by him what i take away from the movie the black hole more than anything else is it represents a transition from pre-star wars to post-star wars black hole was disney's answer to star wars just like star trek which was being retooled to be called Star Trek Phase 2, launches a TV series before Star Wars hit the movie theater. And then they took that and they made it into Star Trek, the motion picture. And the black hole actually is kind of somewhere in the ether realm between the two. It does have a very distinct Disney vibe to it, all the way to the ending. I don't know about a Disney vibe to it, but it was definitely a hodgepodge. I guess the yeah. Disney vibe came from those two awful, awful droids. If you go back and you watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, yeah, and you watch Long John Silver, A Treasure Island, if you watch the Disney movies that were being made in England, the live-action Disney movies post-World War II, that's what this feels like to me except it does take a couple of twists or turns off the beaten Disney path. Disney made those live-action movies like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Treasure Island because during World War II, there's this whole big story, and the Disney company was in trouble, and Walt was doing what he could to support the war effort and losing money, but all of Walt's assets from movie theaters overseas were frozen during World War II, and because the state England was in, they couldn't release the money to Walt. What Walt decided to do was build studios over there and go over there and film movies. He was able to spend his money made in England, in England, but not outside of England. You follow me? Mm-hmm. And so that's how he turned that negative into a positive, was by using the money over there to build studios and make, make the live-action movies which was cheaper and faster to make than the animated movies. And he had great success with them. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is historically one of the biggest movies 
ever made. Same thing with Treasure Island was one of the most praised movies ever made. He went over there and he made those movies. And that's what I'm talking about with Black Hole. It feels as though they went to England, even though they didn't, to make Black Hole. And Maximilian Schell's character, Reinhardt, really, really has a heavy Nemo vibe to him. James Mason, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I definitely felt he came across with a Nemo vibe. What what this movie, the movie has a few things going for it. Well, the last scene is fantastic, I thought. The ship, the main ship's a pretty good, is a real good design on it outstanding there's good ideas in the movie it's just that all the robot designs and all the other stuff is just terrible yeah even, Maximil- cool. even maximilian's design from the shoulders up maximilian is a pretty cool looking design but from the shoulders down his arms and legs everything is a terrible terrible design those floating little robots is an Vincent awful design and bob yeah which yes see that what got me is so weird is like these are like the best robots ever made they, they look like garbage they were horrible. It looked like somebody cut out a paper square and put a dot on the center of it for their eyes. It was just, yep. it, was, it was, they were just horrible. And one of the things that I, that I think hurts the movie, and some of this is probably due to the script, is it's a very small cast of a movie as far as characters and people with actual speaking roles. And they're good actors, but if there's any interaction, it all comes off very flat and very just sort of reading off a script. Like, no one has any chemistry with any of the other people in this movie. No, you get no sense of history. These characters come into existence the moment the movie starts, and their existence ends with the movie. Yeah. You don't feel there was any before or any after. We need to point out that Maximilian Schell is the actor that played the main heavy, the bad guy, and he's the top cast in this movie, and he played Dr. Hans Reinhardt. There's a robot, an evil robot in it, named Maximilian. The robot was named Maximilian before they hired Maximilian Schell to play Heinz Reinhardt. However, after they hired Maximilian Schell to play the lead character, the bad guy, they changed the spelling of the robot's name to 1L, same as the actor, to kind of honor the actor, or wink, wink, nod, nod, or, or what have you. So there's a difference between Maximilian Schell and Maximilian the robot. Although, if you watch the movie at the end, there's no longer a difference between Maximilian Schell <laughs> and the robot. <laughs> Ronnie McDowell was the voice of Vincent, uh, one of the little robots you were talking about. I thought the two robots were charming, but you could clearly see where Disney stepped in and said, we want a toy, we want it as marketable as R2-D2. They gave it the big eye. It was a weird design for a little robot that was running around killing everybody. He was well, a good was, guy. It was too much of a toy. It was too kid-friendly yeah. looking in appearance. But uh, Ronnie McDowell did the voice of Vincent. And he was not credited in the movie at all. Who did the voice of Bob? Oh, you, do you not know? Slim Pickens. Pickens. Is that yeah. him? Okay, I didn't even think, I, I didn't really think about who did the voice. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I looked up Vincent to make sure because I kept thinking, that's Roddy McDowell, isn't it? And in the credits, he's not listed in the credits. And so I looked it up and I thought, yeah, it is. Yeah, I found out it is Roddy McDowell. And Slim Pickens is Bob. But overall... Counting Roddy McDowell and Slim Pickens, who were not credited in the actual film, but if you count them, you've got 10 credited actors in this entire film, including Ernest Borgnine. Yep. It was a movie that, had it waited 
to be made probably would have gained much more renown than it actually did. That's from lack of emotion and involvement between the characters, and where it was dealing with heavier concepts, it was trying to explain three dimensions to a two-dimensional cartoon character. I think it suffered from that sort of a syndrome. Maximilian Schell, far and away, was the best actor in this. Anthony Perkins is a, is fair in it, but he's very predictable. You really don't know. You get a Nemo vibe from Reinhardt, but you're not entirely certain until you are entirely certain. I just generally was not all imp impressed at all. I have to agree that I think Maximilian Schnell was, I don't want to say the best actor, but he was just chewing up the scenery and having a good time. And everybody yeah. else, like you said, there was no chemistry, even though these are all... Talented actors, again. For like Ernest Borgnine, you know what was going through Borgnine's mind. This is science fiction film number 53 for me. I know the beats. Is my character going to die or not? Oh, he's not? Okay. Now I know what beats to play in it. Oh, he is? Okay. Then I know what beats to play in it in that case, too. He just Borgnines it right in there. Ernest Borgnine is Ernest Borgnine. He's the same character in everything he's ever been in. And that's not slamming him. He's a sound bet for a movie, especially in that time period. This movie was overly ambitious, but did not have in enough heart and soul to pull it through. The designs of the ship? Dear God, that ship was awesome. Yeah, the ship itself was fine, but I mean, some of the interiors didn't look good. None yeah. of that, none of that yeah. robot or humanoid stuff well, looked good at all. You got the science fiction interior, science fiction interior. Let's go have dinner, and suddenly in the Renaissance period. <laughs> and that that goes back to like the transitional thing that you would say. Like there were parts of this movie that reminded me of the old Star Trek TV series, not the Star Trek the movie, but which came out right before this, but. The Star Trek TV series, I mean, like, the doors open the same way. with the same sound effect. Yeah. Swish, swish. But so, it was the same, it was the same and, thing and with, yeah, but it and, was the same thing with the original Westworld movie and with right. Run Runner. God, Run. okay. Yeah, Logan's Run. I mean, you had the same Star Trek doors. This was the standard thing. This is what we fell from. Yeah. And the little ship that the crew. Mino. Yeah, the Palomino, the Palomino's door was actually the door from the ship in space 1999. Yeah. And that was a complete accident. Was so, it? Yeah, it was. This was one of the last movies that, live action movies that Disney did that was solely in-house and relied upon the Disney special effects group. They talked to Lucasfilm about renting the Dextra camera that John Dex created and that they used in Star Wars. But Lucasfilm didn't want that out and was saying they were going to charge an outrageous amount for it. So Disney went back and created something called the Ace Camera, which was far superior to the Dextra Camera, and they get angles and shots that Star Wars wasn't able to pull off. But that doesn't matter if the movie's not good. Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree slightly here. There were, like, the model of the ship was, was amazing, but... Yeah. Their camera work was like, I mean, I, I could almost see the, the Palomino stuttering as yeah. it was like kind of drawn across. It was Now it that's was like special that, effects. That's not camera. It was weird because they would have something that looked good and then they would have a crappy special effect. And it was just all like kind of thrown in there. Nobody with a line of vision was behind this. The reason we still talk about Tron the first Tron and the second Tron, and we do, but we don't ever talk about Black Hole, 
is because there was a vision behind Tron. There was something there that was way ahead of its time, even though the movie itself did not live up to that entire that vision at all, or as much as we would have liked it to. Tron still impacted pop culture enough, but Black Hole did not. You don't ever hear anybody referencing Vincent or Bob or Maximilian Schell's character, Dr. Reinhardt in it or anything else. Back to what I was saying, they were doing everything they could to emulate Star Wars and what Lucasfilm did. And if you remember, Lucasfilm went out and bought thousands of models of battleships in order to detail the Star Destroyers. You know, they'd take the little plastic models from the model store or the Woolsworth or whatever, you know, in the toy aisle, and they'd take them apart and reform them to give the Star Destroyers details or the Millennium Falcon details. The Disney crew did the same thing. The problem was is that one of the models they bought, or several of the models they bought, were of the spaceship from Space 1999. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's idiots? And they just blatantly used one of the doors on the little ship, on the smaller ship. Where, where did you think they were going with this heaven and hell ending? Because very clearly, Maximilian the Robot and Dr. Reinhardt, they combined to become one. He's trapped inside the robot itself. And at the end, we see him on a mountain in hell. And we see the heroes taken off to what can only be described as heaven. Well, I just read this interview where it said that basically they got the script and the end of the script said they go into the black hole. So they had no ending for this movie. All while they're shooting, they're trying to figure out what, how are we going to end it other than they go into the black hole. They actually had another ending, but that one got nixed by Disney. What um, was the other ending? I think it was darker is basically what it was. Darker than going to hell, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you guys got to go to heaven. They went to West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, oh God, we're in West Virginia. Oh, okay. Here, The ending was that it wasn't darker. It was more religious. You'll like this one, considering what we were talking about earlier, Stan. He actually went to the Vatican and was shooting the Sistine Chapel. Because, uh, yeah, because his ideal was to shoot some sequences of passing through the painting on the Sistine Chapel of God reaching out to Adam. And he actually went and got permission to film the fresco. So it was supposed to come out of the woman's eye, you know, when they were doing all that trippy stuff. Instead of all that stuff that happened, it was going to go to the eye of Adam from the Sistine Chapel. And then there was going to be all this stuff with that, the creation of Adam. And Disney said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not going to work out. I'm willing to bet the idea from that was being derived from the 2001 One, yeah. monkey scene. Yeah. I mean, I know we're talking about two different aspects, but I want to do that, but not that. So what would not that look like? And not that would be the Sistine Chapel scene. Well, it's almost yeah, kind of, it's almost, it would almost be kind of a loop, maybe going back to Planet of the Apes or something where it turns out, oh no, that woman and this, the guy turns out to be Adam and Eve and going through the black hole is how humanity starts or whatever. Yeah, that would be a space time thing, but that would be even yeah. more confusing than the ending we got. Well, Disney and, didn't want to do the, the Vatican stuff because they're, I'm pretty sure they're Protestants, probably. Uh, yeah, Disney, I believe the Disney family was Methodist. Yeah. See? Yeah, at the same time, Disney was not alive during this. Disney had died 10 years earlier. 
Who's running? Who, who was running Disney? Uh, well, that would have been that would have Roy? been no Roy would have uh, Roy would have already passed away by 1979. That would have been. I'm trying to think of the Eisner would have been very close to taking it over, but this would not have been under Eisner. I'm trying to think of the guy. I can see him in my head. They were having trouble trying to figure out what to do with Epcot at the time, and they had already signed the Orlando Airport over to Orlando because you know that was Disney's airport okay. that was never supposed to be run by orlando okay it says ron um, miller and the heads of the studio bingo didn't want that's him ron yeah. ended up on the cut, cutting room floor yeah yeah ron miller ron miller and he was yeah i think he was also related in some way i think he was married one of the daughters i'm not sure yeah i really don't think that catholicism had anything to do with it because that sistine chapel no. that's 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 a, that's not a yes it's in the vatican but that's universal that, that zeitgeist. From, like, you know, Genesis. So, <laughs> yeah. This just, again, tells me that this movie what? was a, just a hodgepodge. Then they remade it and called it Event Horizon. Now, that, oh, I, I, another, I see that, no similarities between this and Event Horizon. Yeah. Are you shitting me? It's the same Look, movie. It's not the like, same They, they movie. shoot through black holes and, and go into hell and back. No, they had a warp drive. <laughs> Which is a black hole, Stan. And they ripped the hole. A... They ripped holes in the universe. Disney didn't have anything to do with Event Horizon. So, no. people No, they just ripped it off. Here's another tidbit. We might actually get, or there was a remake that they had a script for as late as 2016. In 2018, it was given to another writer to revamp. Because, again, uh, <laughs> Disney says... Well, no, this is yeah, there's there's no idea that dies at Disney. If an idea is good enough that it gets off of an artist's drawing board and into one of the discussion rooms, mm -hmm. Disney will never fully put that idea away. They'll do something with it that's called Blue Sky. They'll put it away until they come out with the best possible situation. One of the movies that Disney was working on long before he died was The Winter Queen, which ultimately became Frozen. Frozen was being worked on while Disney was alive. They just couldn't nail it. And it took this long for them to nail a script to Frozen. And even in the process of writing Frozen, initially Elsa was the bad guy in it. And then when they wrote the song and the song was performed, the writers went back and said, wait a minute, nope, 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 nope. And rewrote the whole thing to where it was the story about the two sisters, where it wasn't one of the sisters was evil and with the, the ice powers and the other sister was put upon. It became the love story between the two sisters. So Disney never really truly gets rid of any concept. They keep it around until they find a way to make it work and offer to the public. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if we did sometimes see a remake of the movie Black Hole, because there's a lot of interesting concepts in it, and there's enough of it that works that it's worth a try at the story. I think you're being generous, but that's, that's just... It's a good enough idea there. You, you'd have to really refine it based on what they do. I don't know. I don't know if Disney could do it now either. Now may not be the time for it, but... There's something there. It could be brought back where it's recognizable enough, but also because it did not become as much of the zeitgeist as, say, Star Trek, Star Wars, and Tron, and the rest of them did, 
that there's more than enough room to play there. You've got a wonderful Nemo character dynamic going with Reinhardt. Again, that should be the center of the story. You can alter the rest of them because everybody else that's in, every other human in that movie is interchangeable with every other human ever in any other science fiction movie or TV series. They're all very stereotypical individuals, but you could dress them up a bit. You could rework Vincent a little bit, where the eyes are maybe different, but he's still the same, but he's different. Works a little Vincent, better. Vincent needs to go back to the drawing board. Vincent well, yeah. on the trash heap. <laughs> Why did you want us to do this movie? You saw something in it. I don't know. I just hadn't seen it for a while. Was it the, <laughs> end, was it the ending, Albert? Because No, end- I, I just wanted to watch it, and I figured we could watch it and talk about it. Oh. I don't have anybody to talk, talk about this stuff to. Okay. Well, I found that article that said they didn't have an ending, so this was kind of pulled out of their butt. That ending, I'm glad I woke up and rewound it, because that ending to me was, what the heck? That ending makes this movie discussion-worthy, let's say. It almost saves it. Yeah. I mean, The ending almost saves the movie itself. Don't don't quite. Yeah. Yeah. You want more because of the ending, because you're like, wait, what? You just start getting good at the ending. Yeah, it's This is the second time I've watched it since Disney Plus has been on the air. The first time I watched it was because last year you had said, they better put the black hole on there. I want to watch the black hole. And I thought, you know what? I haven't seen that since it was in the theater. I could just remember the robots, Maximilian, Reinhardt, and the ship. And that well, was see, the Disney only thing. did I could a lot remember. of their movies like that. Remember Tron? You couldn't, yeah. like, when Tron Legacy was coming out, you could not find the old Tron movie worth anything. No, no. no. That old Tron, but but you know what? Tron's boring. That's why. It is, but there was a lot to it. There was. Like, it's a cool movie to watch yeah. as a mm. background thing or something, but if you sit down and try to watch that original Tron, it is super boring. had David Warner as the villain. He's always awesome to watch. Well, he was a good villain in it. Look, the actors were good in it. Bruce uh, Bruce Boxleitner, he was a great Tron. Jeff Bridges has Flynn. I mean, he was wonderful in it. I even liked Tron Legacy. I love Tron Legacy. I really was looking forward to when they were talking about making a new Tron trilogy off Tron Legacy with Flynn's son and Olivia Wilde's character. That didn't come to be, but... They're coming back with Tron. And even though those two movies are not what you traditionally would consider a success at the box office, they've more than made their money back in their post-box office life. And they're popular enough that, dear God, Disney has thrown millions into building a Tron roller coaster at the Magic Kingdom based off the popularity and the success of the Tron uh, roller coaster in Japan. Hmm. And you're basically riding the light cycles. It looks really cool. You should YouTube that and take a look at the uh, Tron roller coaster. I did want to say that, like that other movie we watched where I said, oh, uh, it was one of the Corman movies. This movie was in the wasteland of sci-fi. I mean, people just don't realize how lucky they have now. This was in the wasteland where there might be like two sci-fi movies or fantasy movies a year. This is just before the floodgates opened with, of course, you know, Star Wars and some other things. This Uh, is has they opened. This was 1979, and it came out close to Star Trek The Motion Picture. 
Right. Star Trek the Motion Picture was a known property. This was like a new thing. But what I was going to say was, when I'm looking this thing up, it was so desperate back then that this actually got two Academy Award nominations. And I can't believe one of them was for Best Visual Effects and the other one was for Best Cinematography. Because I didn't see either of those things on the screen when I was watching them. Of course, then there were some Saturn Awards, which, again, because they got nominated for, but Best Science Fiction Film. I just, uh, you know, it just boggles my mind that it was so, that there were so few things out there that this is what was getting nominated. Tron was initially nominated for Best Visual Effects, and the Academy threw it out before it came down to voting because they considered Tron cheating since it used CGI. <laughs> Lord. True story. <laughs> no, they did not. Nope. A computer aided in those effects. So apparently the Academy has had a change of mind since then. Really? At the end of this one, the black hole, we see Maximilian, uh, the robot, combine with Reinhardt, the human, and go to hell. And we see what's left of the heroes go to what we assume is heaven in one of the most offbeat, unusual endings to a film, especially from that time and dealing with the content that it was dealing with. I don't now, know. You don't know. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they all got arrested by the cops at the end of that movie. That's a comedy. So? That works in a comedy. You can, you've got more leeway in a comedy than you do a serious film. Uh, I guess. <laughs> Let's discuss High Rise with Tom Hiddleston. I know this is based on a book by J.G. Ballard, and it's set in the year 1975. We know that because that's the year the book was written in, but we know that the movie's set then because at the end we hear a speech given by Margaret Thatcher. The movie High Rise, what you've got is Tom Hiddleston is a physiologist, a doctor that moves into this what at the time is a state-of-the-art building and multiple floors to it, and the people on the higher floors judge the people on the lower floors as like the lower class. And the building itself was supposed to be completely self-sustaining. You watch this class warfare take place over the different levels of the building. I couldn't help but feel that in some way the character Hiddleston was playing, Robert Lang, uh, was reflecting Dante. Did you watch it, Albert? Yeah, Okay. Yeah, I can prove I watched it. They used the ABBA song SOS twice in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Yes, they did. Two different versions of it. Yeah. Which, what, my main walk away from this movie, where this movie impacted me the most, was when they were playing the, the orchestral version of SOS. I was like, holy shit, there's an orchestral version? I grabbed my iPhone. That's a really <laughs> good version of that song, too. Nice. Yeah, yeah, and immediately downloaded the orchestral version. SOS. I watched it. This was picked out by my wife because it had Tom Hiddleston in it. And we're just going to leave it open as to whether or not she knew there was full frontal nudity in it or not when she picked it. <laughs> but this was really a messed up, depressing film that you just couldn't turn away from. Yeah, I'll agree with that assessment. Uh, uh, it's almost a bad movie. IMDB would say that it, it's right there in the middle of it. Now, I thought it was a good movie, but it's almost a bad movie. This movie feels like there's like five minutes missing that I really need to watch. 
I, I feel that there's a lot we missed out on. I had a lot of questions like, why are they just relying on the stores inside of the building? He's going to work. Can he not stop off at a food world on his way back in or something? Well, there see, at one point I, I thought maybe it was like not like some different 1975 where like you just sort of live in this building and there's nothing outside of it. But no, there's mm-hmm. stuff outside of it. No, no, no. They showed flashbacks of yeah. the actor acting in the studio. They showed television. I, I mean, no, the world outside was normal. It was driven home that it was normal by the Margaret Thatcher speech. That's a real Margaret Thatcher speech that she gave. I don't think it's supposed to be literally... I think that Margaret Thatcher speech is there not to place it during a certain time period so much as to place it as a punctuation point to what the movie was about. Which I think this movie makes more sense and resonates more if you're British. Because this is definitely... Oh, it's definitely got that feel to it. An American film, I think, would have dealt with race as opposed to class a british film is going to deal with class i mean we have classism in of course we have classism in the u.s but it's not the same or as ingrained as it is in britain yeah it's a bit different i mean all of us look down on walker county for good reason <laughs> Dad but walker county <laughs> I've got family out there. That's why I throw it in whenever I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this, this was about class, but it wasn't just, it, while it's easy to say the movie is about classism, and yes, I do say that the movie is about the differences in the classes here and the class warfare sort of tone and all this, I think it also speaks to how quickly humans are willing to degrade themselves for their own for their own purposes of ego and their own ends. There is a lot of violence and unnecessary violence. And well, I, yeah, and the movie is really rapey. Yes. It's just the whole tone of this. You enter in and it's not exactly like you're entering into a hopeful situation to begin with, given the coloration of the interiors of the apartments and the condominiums inside of this tower. But what little hope there is is clearly being chipped away from you. Where by the time we get to the scene, Lang and I forget her name. She's from The Handmaiden's Tale. Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. Okay. She's pregnant and they hook up behind her husband's back and her husband's not even fully aware of it even when he walks in on them. This is all a very surreal situation that's punctuated by Lang going outside of the building to his normal job in a normal office interacting with some normal people who are showing concern over his mental well-being and health. This is not a movie I would recommend people sitting and watching unless, you know, I just wanted to put them through it like I did the two of you. (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Look, Hiddleston was great in it. Irons was great in it. <laughs> well, it had a lot of, like most, all the acting in this movie is very, is really good. Yeah, I was going to say, this is another movie that had a great cast. And like when you told me about it, I thought, uh, and then I thought, okay, Tom Hiddleston. And then I started looking at the other actors like Luke Evans and Jeremy Irons and James Purfoy. The list goes on. J.G. Ballard wrote the book. 
Mm-hmm. That this movie is based on. You know what else he wrote has a novel that became a movie? Let's put it in a little more perspective to me because I didn't know this. Well, he wrote several things, Fire of the Sun, but that's, that's not what I'm talking thinking. about. Okay. Crash about the people who became sexually addicted to car accidents. Yeah. And Cronenberg directed that one. I think I sat through all of like 40 minutes of that and thought, and I'm done. I think I've watched that movie like five times. Are you kidding? Yeah, with James Spader and Holly Hunter. It was just a movie. It's just weird. It was just weird and it didn't hold my attention that much. But there were similar thematic elements to it. And it all seemed to evolve the eventual degradation of human beings over time. I guess that's an overall theme with Ballard. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. People were using each other in this book, not just in cla- in a class situation. The husband that you were talking about, Lang, who is Tom Hiddleston's character. Yes, he had, I don't want to say an affair, but I mean, they, he had an encounter with Luke Evans' wife's character, who was, I can't remember her name now, but anyway, she was the one that was in The Handmaiden's Tale. But Let's remember that Luke Evans spent 99% of the movie, his character, up at the party girl's apartment trying to sleep with her or sleeping with her. Yeah, that's the overall thing here. It's not like, I'm not judging any character any more than another character. I'm just saying it's all very nonchalant by the time we get to that point. But I'm saying that they were both, like, both the husband, like, Luke Evans and Elizabeth Moss, their characters were married, but they were using people around them. Like, I, I, she was using Lang in part yeah, because of her disappointments with her husband, and he was using the parties to have a good time, but he was also trying to rise up in the high-rise, in the social levels, so he could get more work at the TV stations from these more upper-class guys that own the TV stations. There was a lot of people using each other. and I'll give the movie this. It put my time in an apartment building in perspective. Thanks to J.G. Ballard's High Rise. <laughs> I look back on that and I think, you know, that wasn't so bad. That was just I don't know, man. This apartment building seemed like a good time. <laughs> Yeah. The cops don't even show up. Well, they showed up, but Jeremy Irons assured them that everything was okay, and so he went on about his business. And to be honest, if I showed up somewhere in suspicion of something going on and Jeremy Irons told me it was okay, I'd probably go on about my business, too. (laughs) So are we recommending either of these movies to people who haven't seen them before? (laughs) No, Black Hole. Yes, on High Rise. Albert would recommend High Rise. I don't recommend it because a lot of people, having been quarantined in place and facing the situation now, are already in a bleak mindset. I don't think this is the right movie. This is not the pick-me-up movie of the year that you want. This is not Annie. Well, <laughs> so. I think it, uh, Might as well watch it. Ain't nothing getting better. I'm gonna... <laughs> High Rise is for particular uh, is for people that they're not just looking to be distracted or entertained. They're looking for a more artsy, intellectual type movie because there's plenty in High Rise to talk about as far as society, how dystopian, the breakdown of society. If you like Walking Dead, it's kind of like that sort of thing where you have people under stress and how they act badly. 
this is the kind of movie that your liberal arts college professor will show to you in Lit 103. Yeah, it, it is jam-packed with stuff. I mean, jam-packed with stuff. Uh, overall, this is a disturbing movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching it. Albert does recommend watching it, and there's a lot to it. But look, you got to be in a mindset to get through this. Right. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember Crash, too. Same thing. I don't know that I've ever read any of J.G. Ballard's novels, and I'm not inclined to run out and pick one up after High Rise and Crash. Albert, Sandra, you got anything to say before we wrap it up here? The Disney parks are opening. Disney has announced that they'll be opening in July, and there's going to be very controlled situations. I'm just waiting patiently and taking my Clorox chewables. <laughs> Don't forget the flashlight. <laughs> I injected in my eyeballs. <laughs> okay, at this point, I'd like to stop and remind everybody there's no such thing as Clorox chewables. Do not ingest Clorox in any shape, manner, or form. Yes, there are. It's those little tablets you put in your toilet. <clears throat> there's you no such them. thing as there's no <laughs> such thing as Clorox chewables. If it says Clorox on it, toilet. stay away from it. Do not ingest it in any shape, manner, or form. Oh, Don't put anything into your eyeballs. You know, they're about so, the size of a moon pie. We'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Well, again, our ratings are wonderful, outstanding. Thank you all so very much. Look, recommend us to your friends. Recommend us to your enemies. If you got any questions, if you just want to say something, send it to us. Our email is kingdomcasts, kingdom, C-A-S-T-S, at gmail.com, or kingdomcomics at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at both Kingdom Casts and Kingdom Comics, Twitter also, or you can call and leave a voicemail or text message us at area code 205-978-0600. We cannot thank you enough. We really enjoy doing this. Thank you for being our audience. Thank you for being here. We'll be back again next week with comic reviews, and it'll be a surprise as to what else we talked about because we haven't decided yet. <laughs> Albert, Sandra, y'all got anything to say? No, I'm good. Uh, no, I'm I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> oh, there you go. Albert, would you like to take this opportunity to apologize to Scientology? They got to apologize to me first. I was about to say, don't don't even dare think that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next week, I'm Stan Daniel. That's Sandra Swindle and Albert Marsh. Tell them good night. Bye. Good night. Kingdom Casts is owned by Kingdom Comics Incorporated and produced by Stan Daniel and Albert Marsh. No part of this program may be reproduced, replicated, or replayed without permission. Special thanks to Sandra Swindle. Also, thanks to our content contributors, Jason Bean, Tim Bryant, Denise Daniel, Josh Duke, Alex Fitzpatrick, Charles Hickey, Allison Marceau, Mark Adam Miller, and Contrita Olstead. Logo designed by Geoffrey Glenn. Edited by Stan Daniel. Kingdom Casts is copyrighted 2020. All rights reserved. Do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs>